0: Hello, listeners. This is Eric Brickmont, co-host of Nerds on History. If you're in the mood for something a little different, something a little funny, something maybe with some bad words in it, we've got a podcast for you, Nerds on Film. You can engross yourself in everything from the film world and laugh your hiney off all at the same time and if you want to listen to it all you've got to do is log into itunes and subscribe head over to stitcher radio or listen live on our website there's so many different ways to bring nerds on film to you thank you sound check sound check sound check
1: yeah check one yeah check one you, you all right i don't know man i am just i'm feeling a little, little anxious about this this episode why i just i can't explain i just i'm just, oh, I, right, just, I'm right. starting to freak out. I just okay. need to, need to right. calm so down. What got
0: to do? Listen to me. Just look, look at me. Listen to me. Breathe in. Breathe in. Breathe in. Hold it. Hold it. Very good.
1: Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. Hey, Brian. Yes, sir. How you doing? I'm good. How are you?
0: You know, I've had had a pretty good week. It's been pretty slow. I've been a little tired because it's been kind of slower at work right now, and I'm just kind of... You know how you kind of get tired when you're not really doing anything? When your mind is more active and your body's more active, you tend to feel Mm -hmm. like you have more energy. I'm kind of in one of those little... I don't want to call it a stupor. But I'm, I'm definitely feeling like I, my energy is a little lower than normal.
1: Yeah, and I feel like there's a lot of offices that are going through that right now. It's yeah. just that, that post-New Year's slump that yeah. everybody goes, everyone's slowing down, everyone's tired from the holidays, and now we're slowly building our, our energy back up.
0: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. In fact, uh, that lack of energy, perhaps nationwide, still hasn't stopped our amazing Facebook fans. From coming out and talking to us and giving us some really awesome uh, feedback. That was a nice segue. I like that. Thank you. I, <laughs> I, I didn't plan it, but it just kind of the moment struck me, and I had to. I had to run with it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Let, let, don't stop the roller coaster now. Let's oh, go. Let's keep
0: going. So uh, I just want to give a little little shout out to I think probably one of the greatest named fans that we have thus far, Nico Aristotle. I love that name.
1: Is that a real name? Or is real. That like...
0: Oh, I mean, that's his name on Facebook. I'm assuming that's his real name.
1: No, it's not like a nom de plume or anything like that? What were you asking me? <laughs> yeah, Nico, if your name is real, that's awesome. It is awesome.
0: I I, am of the mindset that his name is, in fact, Nico Aristotle, really is. He was born that way and uh, shall always be that way. And I think it's it's an awesome name. Anyway, <laughs> I'm tending to ramble on a bit. Nico gave us a, a bit of a correction from our civil rights episode. Oh, yes. Which would be Please. two episodes back. By now, I believe, and uh, that Mississippi Burning was not actually the a, a story revolving around
1: uh, Emmett, Emmett Till, Till. Right,
0: that's right. Uh, instead, it was actually the three civil rights workers that had gone missing. Uh,
1: right, it was it right. 1964?
0: I, now I don't even remember how awful, and I'm trying to correct myself. But
1: um, case in point, it was not about Emmett Till. Yeah,
0: case in point. Now there are actually several documentaries that have been released, not really feature like films, right? So they haven't really shown up in movie theaters. But uh, if you're familiar with PBS and The American Experience, which is a, a really excellent series that's been on for years, they did an excellent documentary on Emmett Till just a couple of years ago. So uh, if you are interested in learning more about his story, uh, as sad and tragic as it is, uh, please do check out that uh, excellent documentary that, uh, that they put out on PBS.
1: Cool, cool, cool. And Nico, thank you very much for your feedback. We, we really appreciate when a listener um, cares enough to keep us in, in check because yeah. we're, we're certainly not experts. As we've taught it before.
0: Well, what do we say at the end of every episode?
1: Don't take our word for it, Exactly. Right? And he didn't.
0: And it was great. And we love that. Yeah. So thank you, Nico. We appreciate the uh, the correction. And speaking in the same kind of uh, vein, if we will, if mm-hmm. you don't mind me going off on another little mini tangent, before we jump into the, the big theme of the episode today, <clears throat> uh, we had the, such an amazing episode last time. It was so cool having Kathy come on.
1: Yeah, she was...
0: She blew our minds away. She absolutely. made us look like the dumbest people on the planet, and I absolutely <laughs> love her for that. She is, and I've known Kathy for years. She is just one of the the, the brightest people I've ever met, and she is just wonderful. So, f- listeners, I know that you enjoyed her just as much as we had her on the show, but we we got so caught up with so much that we didn't have time for at least for me to talk about a couple of quick things I wanted to do to reference a little bit of pop culture and nerd culture to tie in evolution. There were these two great video games. One that came out, uh, originally came out, or I think it was based off another one in 1989 that was released in Japan, and then kind of got many elements of it, came around in the early 90s with another version of the game, it was called EVO, and it released for the Super Nintendo, and essentially the idea was, you start out as this little fish, eventually, you know, progresses and evolves and and changes into a, a bigger, stronger, more powerful fish, And uh, you progress through each level like this. So eventually you make it out of the oceans and then you start as like a small, you know, lizard type creature that evolves into either a dinosaur or or a bird. And depending on which path you take, you come back to mammals and then you end up like as as a human. And it's interesting because it's a video game about evolution for one. But it also has this strange kind of Japanese mysticism and science fiction elements all thrown into it. Right. Uh, and I think like the the subtext of it was like journey to the Garden of Eden or something along those lines.
1: Right, right.
0: And your idea is that you have to join Gaia, who is like the you know mother, mother soul yeah. of the earth or what have you. Yeah. And you're fighting against evil. And there's these magical shards that are left around that turn out to actually be from a civilization that existed on Mars. And so there's all this really weird stuff. Yeah. But the concept and the idea of a game <clears throat> based around evolution, though, pretty, pretty surprising. You only yeah. really see a lot of that.
1: It's true. It reminds me of the game Spore as well.
0: That was the other game I was going to bring up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: Which recently um, has found new life on Mac and iOS devices. Mm -hmm. They've revamped it. Yeah. I think it is important to address that, again, those games are capitalizing on a misinterpretation of evolution. Absolutely. Because this is really talking about in those games is hypermutation. and
0: Not adapting to your surroundings, but... Trying right. to modify yourself to become stronger right. and better, which is not what evolution's all right.
1: about. What they're leaving out is that the only reason we've ever gone from microbes to what we are today is because of common ancestry dying out. Yeah. Right, common ancestor that one died out, we survived, um, and it's not a direct chain necessarily of morphing from one to the other. Right, and as long as we get that part clear, I think we're cool. I think I think there's <laughs> y- you and me spore. We're okay. We're okay. As long as you understand that. We're going
0: to be all right. We're going to make it through this, I think.
1: I should consult a psychiatrist. I am now talking to inanimate objects <laughs> <laughs> as if they're real people.
0: We all do it, don't we?
1: Do we really? No, just you.
0: Um.
1: <laughs> just, that's what I was checking Okay.
0: Anyhow, <clears throat> just a couple a shout outs for the start of the episode. What we really want to get to is, of course, the, the meat and potatoes of uh, of this week's. I'm not uh, sure if we we'll want use that
1: expression in this, with our topic, but okay. <laughs>
0: Well, Brian, what are we? What are we going to be talking about this week? Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> quite literally. <yeah. laughs>
0: that's right. Well,
1: <laughs> and, that's, and how we deal with it. <laughs> and how we deal with it. That's
0: right. We are talking about uh, the bathroom. In yeah. fact, we are recording this episode live from the bathroom right now. That's a lie. We're not actually doing that. We're in the nerd cave, but uh, wouldn't that be awkward?
1: <laughs> <It'd> be uh, <laughs> terribly awkward.
0: Although it's funny though because. Um, Roman senators who, you know, would leave the the chambers after having uh, discussions and what have you and and discussing politics and and policies would oftentimes continue the conversation while they were sitting on the toilet in a public toilet. That's true. Wow. I don't think I could do that.
1: No, I don't think so. Could you sit
0: down and have a serious conversation with another person? And keep in mind, there were no stalls.
1: You know, right, you're all sitting
0: uh, elbow to elbow to each. I other.
1: would be very distracted to yeah. say the to say the I least. Don't think I could perform. <laughs> <laughs> You'd you have performance anxiety.
0: Can you imagine though that you know, like the subject suddenly turned to something really very serious? You know, deciding yeah. the the fate of a neighboring uh, <laughs> region.
1: <laughs> yeah, just just to make sure, just before we actually launch into this, you did this because this you found this fascinating, right? Like you weren't just looking for an excuse to make scatological references the entire for an hour. <laughs>
0: that's right yes i i i don't know i was thinking about it the other day because to me the bathroom i i call i don't call it the bathroom i call it the uh the voluntary uh isolation room and that (laughs) it's the only place and that i live in a house completely full of women you know i have my my beautiful wife i have my my darling children uh most of the cats your your
1: little man nook
0: (laughs) yeah it's my it's my one place Okay, it's, it's where I get to have my, my moments of solitude and peace and I can think clearly. And <laughs>
1: <laughs> To each their own. To each I, their know, own. know,
0: I think a lot of men feel the same way I do.
1: I would be lying if I didn't disagree, I if I didn't agree with you.
0: My father, I think, treated the bathroom the exact same way.
1: And why do you think that is?
0: I don't know. I think that as homes go, the bathroom is a really recent addition. You know, you didn't really find it. it was It's a new room still. We're still exploring it. We're still well, by recent,
1: you mean within like the last couple hundred years.
0: Even before, less than that, we're talking, you know, 60 years, 70 years. Really? Just up until, really, the 1930s and 40s in the United States and in most places in the Western world, uh, having a toilet in the house was extremely uncommon.
1: So then any places that are older than that would have been retro, actively? Yeah, they
0: would have had to have yeah. bathrooms added into them. Uh, and not necessarily. There could have been a bathing room, right? So using the toilet and using a bath are two very different things. In fact, for most of history... We've seen fit to divide those two different practices into two totally separate rooms. You know, the first real toilet rooms, water closets, as <clears> they as they were called in England. Uh, you know, they they popped up underneath stairs. They were meant to be literally a closet closed away from everything else, and that the only thing you did in there was to relieve yourself. Whereas the bathroom, as a whole, was a much more luxurious place. It was a place of bathing. It was a place of Of putting on makeup or or cleaning yourself up and making yourself look appropriate for special occasions um you know during the victorian era it was a washroom yeah washroom and it was very common uh in the victorian era for people to actually come together and have parties if you will while the 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 main host was getting dressed it was kind of a pre-party people would have their drinks while the the host or hostess was was getting clothed or or in some cases even bathed Uh, Kind of a strange concept today, but you know, 100, 200 years ago, that's uh, you know, when bathrooms kind of came back into existence in Europe, and that's when it became a little bit more popular. Hmm. I think we're jumping ahead a little bit, though. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves.
1: Now, let's take it back to the beginning.
0: Yeah, let's go back really far because do you know when the first very sophisticated form of sewage management kind of came into existence in the world?
1: Sewage management? Yeah,
0: sewage management and just. The idea of, of having an area where your refuse lived for a short time and then went away from you.
1: Well, knowing you, I'm going to take an educated guess here. Egypt?
0: And if you're playing on the home game, deduct five points because no. What? I am not talking about Egypt. I know, I know. Listeners, <clears throat> it's okay. This is Eric Brickmont. I have not been replaced. I am still me, but no.
1: Who was the first people then?
0: One of the most sophisticated ancient forms of plumbing, if you will, actually comes to us from India, uh, from the Indus civilization. And this is around circa 3,000 up to about 2,000 BCE. Really? Really quite a long time ago. And they had very sophisticated small communities. They weren't generally very large, bustling cities, right? Okay, so they were tended to be a bit smaller. Um, But they possessed sophisticated commerce, wheeled vehicles, you know, like carts and what have you. Uh, They domesticated animals and kept them close to their homes. Uh, They wore, you know, cotton clothing. A very very sophisticated well standard uh, of living for these folks and to the point where cleanliness was extremely important to them and the ability to relieve oneself in private was built right into their homes and you don't really see that I mean this was this was you know throughout the whole community right so uh, this is pretty rare, but they had the very first form of flushing toilet. So when we think of a flushing toilet, right, obviously water is meant to move that waste along and move it somewhere else. And so they had concocted terracotta pipe system that was built into people's homes. And they had a designated toilet area, which was essentially just a hole leading into that, into that drain. And after you had done your business, then you used jugs of water to, to wash that down and wash it out and away. And they had a whole series of these terracotta pipes that led from homes into the very streets and were covered by pieces of of wood so that people could walk across them and and not disrupt the sewage system and these would all lead out to a to an area that would you know run off into a river and thus be washed away and not have to be dealt with at all
1: Mm.
0: very sophisticated very sanitary uh, and, you know, it's kind of ironic that this is kind of like the hallmark of their civilization is the fact that they, they had figured out a way of getting rid of their refuse in such a sophisticated manner. Of course, they're known for so many other things and they were a very advanced civilization. But, uh, for the sake of this topic and this episode, we're of course mentioning their, uh, toilet habits.
1: The research that I did for my part of the episode, um, has a contrasting view there. In India? Not in India, but, um, that the first flushing toilet came in actually in Crete in Greece, the point that I have here is that King Minos of Crete had the first flushing water closet, um, and it was dated to be about 2,800 years ago. So we're talking 800 BC, which is quite a bit more recent. So I'm unlikely to believe that yours is more correct. But
0: Yeah, well, I think it really comes down to defining what is a flushing toilet, because both of these are not. And it's just, in, in terms of what is a what is a flushing sewage system, right? as a system as a whole, I'd say India predates that. But as an actual kind of developed toilet, if you will, that's a little bit more developed by that point in, in Crete, right?
1: Fair enough. What do you, Where did you find all this information, by the way?
0: Uh, you know, there's this really fascinating website out there with the, an excellent bibliography that references all of the, the great research that they had done. And it's called sewerhistory.org. And it's it's really, it's quite well done. It's put together very well. And who knew, right, that somebody would take such an interest in such a thing. Yeah. But uh, it does exist. And it's got Tons of fascinating information, far more than I could ever really talk about in, a, in an hour.
1: Yeah. This is obviously a, a kind of a weird topic for us to go over, but at the same time it's a little fascinating because sewage didn't develop until you started getting these more densely populated areas. Right. And I guess when you're not a village, it becomes more of a problem for how you deal with keeping things sanitary. Yeah. Right? And it's just interesting to see how different cultures developed their own methods of staying clean.
0: Yeah. And they all came across the problem in the same way, right? You know, they all approach the problem from the same perspective. Okay, well this is dirt. This is garbage. This is unclean. We need to get rid of it so that we stay healthy. And then how everyone else kind of adapted and, and came to their conclusions is just fascinating.
1: Yeah. And it, it speaks to the abundant creativity of <laughs> of uh societies because there's some very interesting ways that people would dealt with
0: yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. We've got some, we've got a few interesting examples to, to get along to.
1: Yeah, so where does it go to after India then?
0: Well, I'd say not necessarily after India, but perhaps at the same time, maybe even a little bit earlier than India, but not nearly as a developed and a well-planned out form, would be in Babylon, mm. in ancient Mesopotamia. And you found that uh, some of the very first pipes, again, these were clay pipes, terracotta pipes, because generally they were easy to create and could withstand the pressure of the water that was being flushed through it. Uh, were found at this time. And they were about 18 to 30, 36 inches in diameter in some of them. So they were really very large and very massive pipes. And this was initially meant to deal with runoff from rainwaters and floodwaters that were coming through. And the idea and concept of a sewer, mm-hmm. you know, a place for your refuse to go, didn't really fit in in Babylon nearly as much as we think it was associated with drainage for floodwaters and, and, and rain and what have you
1: you know you talk about that and i couldn't help but think of um china of all places because china uh, in imperial china i don't i can't quite remember which the centuries they were but china had a pr- very advanced plumbing system they uh they used their pipes out of bamboo yeah. but they had a way of pumping both water and natural gas and really it's, yeah and for heating is not it's not wild that is pretty wild so they had <laughs> water heaters essentially Essentially. I mean, I don't know if they had water heaters, but I don't know if they put the two together, but I mean, they, they had a way of pumping both through their, this bamboo system that they were doing with.
0: Wow. <laughs> a bit PG&E would be a bit uh, a bit concerned or worried about a bamboo uh, natural right. gas piping system.
1: Right, right. We do well, no have
0: problems with the modern piping as it is.
1: Right. And plus, if natural gas mixes with water, it, you definitely notice it in the water. It has an odd smell and taste to it. So.
0: Yeah, it can't be good for you yeah that's interesting i'd like to know more about that we should do some additional research into that because i want to see if they ever developed the concept and idea of a water heater if they ever really ran these two lines kind of near each other or next to each other for that purpose because that would be that would be interesting Mm -hmm. and if not we should just do it ourselves we should do an experiment and see if they could have done it that (laughs) would be cool that would be interesting interesting, yeah we could do like a web episode special Mm. edition nerds on history web episode that would be interesting i don't know just just pondering okay throwing it's, ideas around rolling them around it's head. doing around yeah for that sure happens sometimes yeah <laughs> sometimes it gets me in trouble but i, I think i'm on to something
1: okay um as it turns out too speaking of china before you get into it yeah uh, a toilet was discovered in the tomb of the chinese king of the western han dynasty mm-hmm. and that dates back to about 206 bc between the two between either 206 bc or 24 a.d hmm. or bce by modern history standards
0: so well, what kind of toilet was it i mean how was it formed
1: uh, well, we really need to talk about what a toilet is, right? Yeah. Because the, this doesn't go into the article I'm referring to, which is on about.com, and that sounds so pedestrian, but in truth be told, about.com has a pretty strong dedication to accuracy in their articles. They don't go into the definition here, but it's important to discuss for a second what qualifies as a toilet, mm-hmm. right? Between a hole in the ground. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we talk about that for a second?
0: Well, I mean, from the research that I've done, a toilet is essentially a, a fixture that allows you to relieve yourself with ease. You, you sit down, you're in a resting period, and that's when you can, you can use the restroom. So it's,
1: it's, more, it's more comfort. Right, because yeah. a
0: flushing toilet, which is the modern invention that we have today, is essentially the same thing, but it's a, it, it's a mechanical toilet, right? It has a whole other mechanism that kind of goes along with it that makes it what it is. Whereas a toilet in general, I think we can all agree on, is more a, a creature comfort,
1: right? So technically like a porta potty yeah. qualifies as a toilet oh
0: absolutely yeah oh, even yeah. though
1: it doesn't have the traditional plumbing that we yeah. would have...
0: or a chamber pot would qualify as a, as a toilet as well anything that just gives you ease of access to do your your deed i think qualifies as a toilet
1: okay yeah so by that I'm definition glad we clarified that yeah. <laughs> well then by that definition this could have been anything this could have been an urn for all we know you yeah. know
0: <laughs> i wouldn't want to be the archaeologist that actually came across that <laughs> inside here could be the remains of one of china's greatest emperors oh, oh god yeah. God, harold did you do this is this is supposed to be funny is this a joke god
1: <laughs> sorry archaeologist finds mummified dung <laughs>
0: <laughs> mum dung
1: <laughs> uh, oh um, wow can we
0: jump back over to to crete for a second sure sure to the minoans because i'm quite fond of them for many different reasons but one of the first bathtubs, because we've talked a little bit about toilets now, but one of the first bathtubs in history uh, was discovered there. And it was a very large clay vessel. It was about five feet long. And it was designed for, for the queen. And this knowledge, this little gem, came to me from my uh, from my father. And it was funny because we, we were chatting and I told him about the episode we were going to do. And he says, well, you, you have to make sure you mention this basin. And he says, well, I don't remember, though, how they drained it. Because it was a very modern-looking bathtub. But I think that they, they shoveled the water, or they bucketed the water in and out of it, which they did. But then he pondered, I wonder if it had a bunghole. <laughs> and I stopped, and I have to admit, even though I'm a grown man, I snickered a little bit. And I looked and I said, excuse me? Because I've never heard the term a bunghole outside of... Sorry, like, I grew up in the 90s, but like listen to Butthead. Butthead. Yeah, exactly. sorry. Yeah. Uh, but.
1: <laughs> it's nothing to be sorry. It is a cultural phenomenon. It is a
0: cultural phenomenon. Yeah, we
1: can discuss it. <laughs> and
0: then he continues on, though. He's like, no, you know, I'm pretty sure a bunghole is only in reference to, to a cask of wine. And sure enough, the the hole that's bored into a cask of wine mm-hmm. uh, would have been corked up. Mm-hmm. But the term of, <laughs> of the time, it's an English term, was to bung it. It was to bung the hole. And therefore, it was a
1: bunghole. Yeah. I think it's important that your dad actually knows the proper term for the vessel, too. A cask. Yeah. Which we would most times call a barrel. A barrel but actually, a barrel is a unit of measurement Yeah. of uh, two normal-sized casks. is considered a barrel. Right. So, good for your dad.
0: Good for him. He's a smart guy.
1: He is indeed. <laughs> is indeed. So, yes. I
0: figured while we're doing a, an episode, which is undoubtedly going to include a bit of potty humor, I did have to throw in my... <laughs> My my, yeah. You know, it's funny when you hear your father say bunghole, though. I'm sorry. Even as a grown man, it's still funny.
1: Oh, it's absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. this
0: this uh, this bathtub, though, is still on view. You can see it in the remains of the palace today if you take the tour. And it's absolutely fantastic. It really is very beautifully crafted. And it has these beautiful bass reliefs that, that just kind of pop out on it. So they spent a lot of care and attention and time crafting this bathtub uh, and had a sophisticated plumbing system like you had been mentioning earlier uh, as well. Of course, this was focused more on the palace, right? So this wasn't available to everyone, kind of like it was in India. But it was very focused on um, being very elaborate, very, being very fancy and, and very uh, extreme. It really is fascinating. Yeah. Now, we do have to talk about Egypt, though. Okay. I have to throw it in there. They, weren't, they may not have been the first, but uh, Egyptian restrooms and concepts and ideas around using the toilet were very different because of the environment they lived in. Plumbing and building plumbing really wasn't very practical. We see a couple of examples of it in some of the remnants of royal palaces, but very little of them are left to us today because, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, they were constructed primarily out of mud brick and, as such, don't really exist to us and in any well-developed form anymore.
1: Right, because uh, mud brick is fairly vulnerable to the elements.
0: Considerably more than, than stone would be, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, as such, you find that um, an Egyptian toilet, a very upper-class toilet, it was a very simple system. It was kind of like a cat's litter box in a sense. You had two bricks, and on top of that brick was a very modern looking toilet seat. Some of them are crafted from wood, and they looked just like the toilet seat you go down to, you know, Home Depot and buy. And beneath it would then be a vessel with sand in it. You would do your deed, you would cover it up, kind of like a cat would, so to, to you know, eliminate any, any noxious odors, uh, and your servants would then clean it out later and, and essentially change your litter. Uh, and hmm. I know it's a strange concept, but when you think about a country completely covered with sand, and sand is all around and impossible to get out of your house, it actually makes a lot more sense than using water as a means by which to uh, cover up and, and dispose of your uh,
1: Yeah, I definitely see mess. the litter box analogy <laughs> there when you talk about it.
0: Not always, though. There were some examples of plumbing, but I don't think they ever had the concept and idea of a flushing toilet.
1: Right. Um, well, because their sole water source was the Nile or rain, so yeah. it makes sense that they wouldn't Very be— Very little rain. Yeah.
0: Only rains, honestly, most parts of Egypt, only about once every seven years do you actually have real rainfall.
1: Yeah, so then it the means their, their primary water source was the Nile. Yeah, which so, was also
0: their primary toilet.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, Not a
0: good combination. We'll talk more I about go. that once we get to England. There too. you go. What I do find very interesting is the very first shower, in any sense, that I could find comes from ancient Egypt as well. Hmm. And there's a few known examples of this. Bathing, in general, was extremely important to the ancient Egyptians, as it was to many ancient civilizations who saw bathing as a ritualistic practice. It was about purity. It was about becoming... Clean not for your own personal comfort, but for respect out of the gods that you were worshiping. And so bathing was a very integral part of temple life in Egypt. Uh, men and women who served in the temple would oftentimes strip themselves of all hair. They would shave all of their hair off so as not to have lice and other dirt be stuck to that, such as oils. And they would they would bathe frequently as they passed into different areas of the temple and uh, for certain ceremonies. Hmm. So it became very commonplace. Bathing was important, and especially among the upper class, among the royalty of Egypt. And so this shower that I'm talking about is essentially a stone basin, a bathtub, well, more of a slab. It wasn't really meant to retain much water, okay? It wasn't meant for you to soak in, uh, but it was just meant to catch it from causing a mess. And this stone slab or basin would then lead to a stone pillar that was intentionally quite a bit up, taller than you, and at the top of that was a bit of a, a little indent that was carved into it. And the belief was, in these certain examples that have been left to us, that the servants would be on the outside, pouring water down on top of that pillar, and it would channel through the little canal that had been carved into it, and make a stream of water that would constantly be flowing and coming down upon you, and that's how you would take a shower. Interesting uh, Of course, other examples which would have been less elaborate would have just included you know your servants nearby with jugs of water and just pouring that water over you and letting you bathe that way. But if the occupant wanted to have a bit of privacy, they could do so by having uh, the water poured from the outside without the uh, servants ever casting a glance.
1: There is a fascinating parallel that I can draw from that because in Judaism um, in Jerusalem, when you would go to Solomon's temple, basically, you would have to bathe yourself before entering. It was a purification process, right? Because right. you're entering up a holy ground. You're literally going to where you believe the gods were at least temporarily residing. Of course, the, the Jews believe that in the holiest of holies, God resided there. That was the one connecting point between God on earth and yourself. So, any physical impurities were not allowed, including spiritual. So, sacrifice were not, was not uncommon as well at that point
0: yeah it's interesting yeah. yeah I mean bathing I think across the globe for for ritual purpose for religion is is very common mm-hmm. and I would say that um, in many ways that influenced I think a lot of other ancient cultures, uh, particularly the Romans and when we talk about when we talk about bathing when we talk about having adequate facilities for communal bathing and communal uh, rest places for for using the restroom, the Romans really take the cake and they yeah, developed they some very sophisticated systems for this. And a, a culture around it, almost, if you will. Uh, we mentioned it very briefly when we when we started talking about uh, bathrooms and how they, they kind of came about. And the Roman senators, you know, and, and businessmen and what have you taking time off and just discussing stuff over, over you know, sitting on the toilet, shooting the s***, as it were. <laughs> Perhaps that's where the, the term came from.
1: <laughs> we'll have to check on that. Yeah. <laughs> But
0: the Roman bathhouse was very, very popular. And Rome itself had many of these bathhouses for its population. And they were meant to be a a public restroom. You know, they had these really fascinating uh, toilet facilities. There's a couple that still exist today. And essentially, they're two slabs of stone that kind of rest on uh, a brick or, or, you know, stone um, shelf, if you will. And they're, they're hollowed out in the area where you would sit. And they even have kind of a little slit cut out if you just needed to relieve yourself by urinating so you wouldn't kind of make a mess. It was almost kind of like a urinal, if you will, Uh, like a a cross between a urinal and a sitting toilet. And these were available to anyone, you know, whether you be a, a lowly peasant or a senator taking a break from a long meeting. This was a place for anybody. And in addition to using the toilet, of course, there were places to take a bath. And these bathhouses had their water pumped in using lead pipes, generally, and, and also um, copper and clay pipes. They used all sorts of different ones. Lead was, was more exclusive. It was more expensive. Also probably led to a lot of uh, Roman emperors going absolutely out of their mind and insane due to the lead poisoning. And that is a very popular theory that has held, uh, held ground for, for quite some time. And we find that uh, these baths, though, were this communal place, a place where men and women would come together. They were totally co they were available for anybody who, who was there to take a bath. And you might imagine those kind of evolving into, you know, a state of uh, debauchery, a state of uh, perversion. And they kind of did. <laughs> there were bathhouses that yeah. were intended for that purpose. Right. But
1: at the same time, this is a culture that has a very different view of sexuality. Yeah, than what We do in our current culture. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, but it was an interesting concept and idea.
1: Yeah. You know. And the way the Romans bathed was even more interesting because they were very particular about cleanliness, but they also, they didn't use soap in the way that we would do it. They would use oils. Correct. and Perfumed times, oils, you know. yeah.
0: And many times those oils were meant to be to scraped off the body. and, and doing Exactly. So they, would, they would scrape off dead skin and they would scrape off uh, the dirt along with it. Uh, you would find that it's believed that some you know, Roman emperors even developed abscesses from the excessive amount of, of, of scraping, scraping. That they were yeah. doing on their bodies
1: this is like an ancient exfoliation that we're talking about but it was a yeah. l- little harsher Yeah, it was well, almost like this rough squeegees they were doing Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> well you know um, the Egyptians actually also mirrored that practice very much so oils and, and perfumes were used to, to mask smells and one of the popular party gifts that was given uh, was a, a small cake of animal fat that was infused with lavender and we see this depicted in the, on the tomb walls where the lavender would be placed upon uh, the head and you have these guests all walking around with these little cakes on their head. And the idea was that because they were in very close quarters, that as the heat of the party began to increase and people began to sweat, so did the, uh, the animal fat. It began to kind of melt and slowly kind of secrete you in this lavender perfume. And yeah. eventually the whole party would just smell of lavender and not of uh,
1: you know, B.O., Right, because yeah. you mentioned animal fat, but that's really the very basis of what we're talking about for soap. You know, mm-hmm. soap is a, a large portion that is a fat of some kind. Yeah, we don't really think about that that much, but it's true, and it's what allows
0: it's what uh, allows the consistency of it how it to how it stays solid and together and, and lathers and allows us to
1: use it. Right, and not only that, but it's what literally allows for the breakdown of grease based stains that are you know that are on our clothes or that are on our bodies. So. It's very functional, um, yeah. though a very interesting application, I will say.
0: Well, you know, we're going to talk about Rome. We have to talk about one of Rome's greatest inventions, uh, two of them, really, that, that came together. Uh, the aqueduct, of course. Yeah. And the sewer. Because now that we had this large metropolis, you know, we had this, this city of Rome that was ever growing, ever expanding. There was always so much going on. They had a very serious problem with waste. Because what did you do once you had used the restroom in your house?
1: And you need to be cleaned, yeah.
0: Well, how'd you get rid of it?
1: You have to throw it out. So, where do you throw it into the street? <laughs> On the
0: street, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and it needless to say became absolutely a health hazard, a real problem, yeah. So, this waste needed to go somewhere, and because mm. the Romans had developed these exquisite aqueducts, some of them transporting water for as much as 30 miles away, that's incredible incredible feat of engineering, even today. But to have done that in the ancient times is, is truly a testament to, to the ingenuity of, of ancient people. Yeah,
1: and on multiple levels, too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, these, these aqueducts, when they came in, they were then diverged and yeah. used for all different reasons. You had drinking water. You had water used for public venues, right, for the baths and what have you. And then you had a sewer system that was being developed for the first time. And while some houses did have their own indoor toilet facilities, mm-hmm. they were not very desirable. Now, the reason being is... If you have direct access to a sewer main and there's no cover for that sewer, what are you going to get?
1: A pretty awful smell.
0: Really awful smell. Yeah. Yeah. And that has been the biggest drawback of any sewer system invented into history is, you know, what do you do with the smell? Uh, Because as soon as you have access to that, you have all these noxious fumes coming up into the house. So they had to devise clever ways of covering it. And, of course, the manhole is one of those and we see some examples of of roman manholes that go back quite a long way Mm -hmm. uh and then some even would of course probably covered up the hole in their in their own home but even still the smell would have been very overpowering from you know all those thousands of people using the sewer
1: yeah and that's to divert too much from what you're talking about but this is a problem that you would see particularly when you think about just the throwing the waste down into the street yeah it's an issue that would plague Western culture for, for centuries, because even after Rome, I mean this was a big deal in Europe too. It's where a lot of disease spread because of the sheer uncleanliness. No,
0: absolutely. Of it. I mean, I, I also don't want to state that the Romans didn't have a respect for the water they were using. They they you know acknowledged the amount of effort that it took to actually get that water to them. And they were quite clever in that they recycled water often. So the bathhouse was were usually set up in such a way that the water that would run off from them could be tied into the sewage system. And then that would be oftentimes used to flush the sewage into the oh, that's smart,
1: very very, smart, very clever. Of course, there were no water refineries at this point. This is that's more of a 20th century convention.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. There was no kind of purification system that was set up, and not would you want to? (laughs) You know, the Romans were lucky; they had aqueducts bringing in a constant source of fresh water, and then they had the sewers that would you know drain out into rivers to get rid of that refuse.
1: And really, nature would do the rest of the work there. Yeah,
0: not everyone had that that same luxury. Uh, many people who used their drinking supply as a sewer oftentimes then ended up res- in getting sick. Egypt is a great example of this. The Nile is a very dirty river; it has been forever because it was their only source of water. So, not only would it be for irrigating their crops, which was its most important use, but it was also used for, you know, the flushing of their of their refuse. Yeah. And so the Egyptians themselves very rarely drank the water from the Nile. It was considered to be dirty. And this um, would
1: explain why, back going back to our old episode about alcohol, why wine and beer was so much more preferable to drink than, than the water was. It was just healthy. It was yeah. clean. It was clean exactly yeah. because nature was doing the filtering for you. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah.
0: a, a beer day keeps the doctor away. So it was, uh, it was wise. It was a good idea.
1: Even more yeah. so the case now. Though probably the Romans would do more mead, I imagine.
0: Than... <laughs> well, the Egyptians had kind of a meaty yeah. kind of beer as well. Yeah, I do think it's fascinating though that that lead ended up being used as that, that primary piping material for the wealthy and rich of, of Rome. And you would think that they would have figured it out at some point, you know, why people like Caligula, you know, and Nero were the ones who were going mad and not everybody else. <laughs> you know, right. they, they, you would hope that they would have somehow made some sort of connection with that. But, you know, how they made these lead pipes is actually pretty impressive, though. They would, they would pound out these sheets of lead uh, that were, in many cases, you know, 10 feet wide. Uh, and then they would bend them around a kind of a wooden uh, dowel, if you will, a really large wooden dowel, and then they would join them together by kind of like a solder. And they create these very sophisticated, very modern-looking pipes. Uh, and they would embed them directly into concrete, which is exactly something that we do today now as a modern society. This is this is an invention, a concept that, that comes to us from ancient Rome. And so it's it's fascinating. It really is. That is
1: really, really fascinating. Because yeah. when I think of that type of elaborate design i think of paris post the french revolution and more their the second french empire you know you do more. realize
0: that paris itself was built on top of the the remains of an ancient roman city and that the the sewer the the famous parisian sewer is actually built off of the original roman sewer that was there
1: i did not know that yeah that mm-hmm. makes sense to why it works so well
0: yeah the parisians would eventually add over 500 kilometers of additional sewer but that original Roman sewer was their was their inspiration for it, and served as a sewer to the Parisians for for many years, uh, leading up until its eventual kind of expansion and evolution. Huh. yeah, who knew? No <laughs> kidding. But you know what I find most interesting about all of this is that we, we seem with the Romans to kind of reach the apex of cleanliness in our in our society in the Western world, and then what happens? Everything. The seems Dark to, Ages. Yeah, the Dark Ages. Everything just seems to like fall in on itself and collapse. And really with the fall of the Roman Empire and kind of the founding of the Holy Roman Empire, right, this this big dynamic shift in Europe.
1: Well, to be fair, the Western Roman Empire. Western right? Roman Empire, Because the Byzantines prospered for quite a bit longer. And Very then true. that became the, Ro- the Holy Roman Empire, yeah.
0: Got to give some love to the Byzantines. Aren't? Yeah. I'm trying to take anything away from them. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> but the, you have this dynamic shift in thinking towards cleanliness. And you also tend to have this explosion of population, right? So now you have cities becoming larger, towns becoming more complex and more compact and packed together. And what happens as a result is a lot of disease mm-hmm. is now popping up and being spread. In all fairness, the disease was, of course, directly connected in many ways to our waste, but was being very much brought about by mites and, uh, and fleas on, on rats, which, of course, led to the bubonic plague. Mm the plague devastated Europe and devastated populations over and over and over again as it kind of has this reemergence, right?
1: Might that millions, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there became this concept and idea of uh, what is known as miasma in that the transmission of disease was passed through the air in addition to uh, water and bathing in particular was discouraged because it was believed that as the pores would be exfoliated and, and opened, it allowed for more of this bacterium to kind of enter into the body. Now, of course, they didn't have a concept and idea of bacteria until you know, Louis Pasteur. But you do have this definite connection with, with disease, with, with sickness and illness being passed from one to the other. They understood communicable diseases, but they didn't exactly understand fully how they were.
1: How they were being passed along.
0: How they were being passed along, exactly. Mm-hmm. So they really hurt themselves, though, because they decided that bathing was a problem when it really... Staying clean was was actually a solution. Uh, but this, this mindset swept throughout Europe. And during the Dark Ages, there was just very little taking of a bath. Now that doesn't mean that everybody walked around stinking to high heaven. I mean, they had other ways of staying clean, right? Of uh, other standards of hygiene. They just didn't really match the standards that had existed during ancient times. So taking a bath really resulted in more of a sponge bath. It was more having a, a cleaning basin, right? And then you would fill that with some water and you would use that to clean off, you know, occasionally. Uh, many people would go, you know, a week or two without ever even taking to that measure. Uh, and it does make sense because as these, you know, settlements became larger and larger, uh, more of that waste ended up in the drinking water. And people were getting sick from from drinking water. Uh, just they didn't have uh, the common sense, I'd say, to devise a system as complex as the Romans and build that from the mindset of, okay, we're building a town it's going to evolve into a city. Let's start building adequate facilities now. Eventually, it just left just their minds. we yeah. to deal with it. I really, really am glad that I did not live in the Middle Ages.
1: <laughs> you yeah, i no kidding.
0: I, I have to have a bath every night. And I think that's true of just about everybody. I, I think there was probably times when I've been just kind of laying around the house all day, and I literally did nothing. I just sat on my butt. And I may have said, yeah, I'm okay. You know, I, I, don't, I don't need to take a shower. I wasn't sweaty or anything. But I'd say for the vast majority of the time, if I don't have a good, warm shower, not a big fan of bathing, hmm. you know, sitting in a bathtub. don't like the concept and idea of sitting in your own filth. I feel like taking a shower before you have to take a bath is unnecessary. So I just cut the whole bath part out completely and just take a shower.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, Listeners, I know you wanted to know that. So I'm, <laughs> I'm happy you were all a little more educated about my bathing habits. But um, I feel like I, I have to. If I don't, I just feel dirty and unclean, and I just don't feel alive. I don't. I don't feel well.
1: Yeah, and that's because our culture had a reshift, right? You were telling me that there wasn't really a reshift toward this cleanliness until the Victorian era, really. Yeah, yeah. Around the time we're basically we, we the turn of the American Revolution. Yeah, really.
0: There, I mean, in England, there were still some remnants of Roman baths that were around, uh, and it's fascinating because those Roman baths that were in England were eventually shut down and repurposed as something else because they uh they oftentimes, as they sometimes did in Rome, uh led to prostitution. And the concept and idea of the modern brothel is very much born out of the the English Roman bathhouses, uh, when they eventually shut down and repurposed. Perhaps not the actual facilities themselves, but obviously the idea was already there, so the brothel was kind of born out of that. Of course, you know this waste had to go somewhere and even though there weren't these really elaborate systems of sewers and what have you existing uh most people at least had a cess pit or some sort of um you know cess pool that was mm-hmm. nearby which this stuff would all be collected and we talked about it in our in our episode where we talked about horrible jobs or strange jobs from history right the the, the gog farmer
1: right. right or the toshers right or the
0: toshers or the the night soil collectors there's so many different terms right now. it's such a awful concept and idea but there are still people in the world today who have that job yeah it's awful
1: <laughs> yes it is
0: and you know it's literally up to your neck and shit. <laughs> oh,
1: God. and it was for, the, for anybody for anybody in the audience who has just started to gag you have <laughs> I'm so sorry you have our deepest sympathies i guarantee we, we've uh, done you can't plenty. Tell. i'm wincing when he's saying this
0: <laughs> i know it's quite grotesque but it needs to be said <laughs> but it was their job to clean this all up and and you know and as such increase the quality of living for these people who who had these cesspools and cesspits uh in fact in in many parts of the world today it's still a key ingredient used in tanning leather is human feces and and urine yeah it's a, it's a it's a process
1: where where in the world uh,
0: i believe in morocco is the largest example of this or oh god maybe it's algeria i can't remember it's somewhere in north africa and i think it has the distinction of being the most odorous city in the world or something to that effect because it is quite disgusting but it's a key you know ingredient in making some of these fine tan leathers so
1: who knew they clean the leather after they tan it right
0: sure why not um (laughs) (laughs) i don't know (laughs) i hope
1: so dear god
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah you're never gonna look at that leather jacket the same way again
1: no Uh, no if it's moroccan leather no thank you (laughs) but some of these
0: cesspools and cesspits though were very poorly uh designed and placed uh, many of the palaces and castles of medieval Europe tended to have them just right underneath the floorboards. And it reminds me of a rather horrific instance in which Frederick I, uh, he was a, a Prussian king of the Holy Roman Empire, or emperor, excuse me, of the Holy Roman Empire, was uh, leading a, a diet of his, of his advisors and war council. Uh, and this was, I believe, just before the Third Crusade, I think, <laughs> when the floor literally let go and I believe uh, it was something like seven or so people drowned in the cesspit that was right underneath the floor. <laughs>
1: oh, my God. I can only imagine that.
0: <laughs> Isn't that awful? I
1: mean... <laughs> can you even just imagine like walk, having one of the servants go up to him and say, Your Majesty, how did the, the summits go? <laughs>
0: Um, it, uh, it, it didn't go too good. No, it didn't go very, well at all. What happened? We were having a very lively conversation and before we knew it the floor, simply let go and, uh, there were, uh, several people drowned in, uh, in the the feces. Yeah. So not good.
1: Not good at all. No, no. I, I think curiosity, what was the topic of the conversation? Uh,
0: you know, ironically, it was, uh, sanitation.
1: Yeah. Oh, that is ironic.
0: It's <laughs> so ironic, yeah. Uh, I have no idea if the conversation ever led that way. I, we we just
1: recreated it. that from history. Yeah, yeah. We pulled
0: that from time. Yeah. We, we have mean, a habit. We have the power to do that if you live together. Yeah, we, we have
1: a seance in this every time we, we, yes, exactly. we, we do we, those scenes. We
0: channeled that from history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so these these cesspits became the standard, and they continued to be the standard really up until the Victorian period.
1: Hmm. And this is in the Victorian period, it was really where. Again, we start, we we see their reemergence of of cleanliness, but also this is when the standards change quite a bit because up to this time period, bathing was was just kind of a common function was not a common function, but if it happened, you weren't startled by it, you know. But yet now we're getting to a point where sexuality is becoming this thing where you try to treat it like it doesn't exist. Yeah, you know, it's this unspoken thing that you do.
0: And that is really easy to do if you haven't had a bath in, like, a month. Right.
1: (laughs) But even if you do, you start noticing that even if there were these Roman bathhouses, there would not have been mixed genders at this point at all. And even to take a small little tangent, too, I mean, this was such a big deal that even when married couples were were conceiving children, they were likely doing it in a a semi-clothed state. Like, that's how intense. Really? Yeah, seriously, like God. like Sounds men's awful. like <laughs> nightgowns and thing and so so forth. You're like this is yeah. designed for
0: facilitating that. Interesting. Yeah,
1: right, hmm. right. I'm not saying everybody practiced it this way, but yeah. that's why it was there, you know. Yeah. And to say that you you have to take a bath that requires obviously a full what's the word maybe in the most vulnerable of states as far as the Victorian uh, ethics code yeah. would have, would have said. So I imagine that this is where the, the whole idea of privacy with it was when it really started to, to sure. take hold. Yeah. While
0: well, we're on a quick tangent. I do want to state that just leading up, into this kind of, up until the reemergence of this, this idea of cleanliness, mm-hmm. uh, the, the idea of getting around this among the upper class was to simply wear linen very close to the body and letting that absorb all the sweat and oils and, and dirt, essentially, that your body was producing. And that was a way of staying clean. In that sense,
1: and then all the more elaborate clothing would go on top of that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so these undergarments, when they did need to be cleaned, had some interesting techniques for doing so. Uh, Oftentimes, they were using lye uh, to do the the cleaning,
1: which is is the other main component of soap. Right. Yeah.
0: But to get the garments as white as possible and to keep out as many stains as possible, do you know what they used as a as a stain remover?
1: I didn't know before you told me before the episode, and I'm a little shocked. (laughs) They used urine.
0: They used human urine, yeah. It was very
1: common. You know, you know human urine evokes many thoughts in my head. Bleaching <laughs> is not one of them.
0: <laughs> you know, it's, it's ironic, though, that the chemicals in, in urine, ammonia... Being key among them are are excellent for removing stains.
1: Yeah, ammonia is a very a non-chlorinated bleach alternative, definitely. Yeah. But the, so they would have to refine the urine into no, an ammonia it state. No,
0: just kind of poured on there, and then you would you would you know use stones to to get out the stain on the washboard, and you would keep doing this, and then you would let it air dry out in the sun, and in the sun mixing with it all would create the
1: whitening effect. Yeah. Okay. Uh,
0: and it's absolutely. Fascinating. In fact, I'm surprised we didn't really mention this uh, on our episode about jobs, but this was a job to to go around collecting people's urine, and you get paid for it.
1: Yeah. In fact, the the piss boy, the piss right? boy. The, yep. the whole job was to literally you you had a bucket and uh, they paid you for it. And there's actually a really funny scene in History of the World Part One uh-huh. Mel where Mel Brooks, Mel, Brooks Mel Brooks is playing the piss boy, and the the Lord drops the coin into the bucket, <laughs> <laughs> and his response was, "I'll get it later." <laughs> <laughs> But yeah.
0: you were talking about privacy and you were talking about this this need for now bringing the bathroom into the home yeah. and into a private place. And this is really where we get our modern concept of a bathroom from, right? It's from the Victorians. So we mentioned it earlier again, though. There were two very distinct areas originally. You had a place for bathing and then you did have a place to to use the toilet facilities. So what were a lot of those early toilets like?
1: Well, the flushing toilet... Wasn't really a convention that came around until about the nineteenth century, if I'm not mistaken. The, you mentioned that the first actual flushing toilet that's closer to what we talk about more from more modern plumbing was actually Elizabeth I, way back in the sixteenth century. Well, it's but, not
0: that she was a flushing toilet, but no, uh,
1: <laughs> no but exactly. But the, she was she it was in her palace, and rightfully so. That it was such a new innovation that only the royalty would be able to um, to use such a device.
0: Yeah, well, it was actually developed by her her godson. Uh, sir john harrington uh, and he invented this very sophisticated device in 1596 which essentially was the precursor to the modern flushing toilet so it was a a system of valves right that would release water that was stored in a tank uh that was then in a sense kind of pressurized by the by the apparatus itself and then used to, to forcefully kind of flush down uh the refuse into the sewer right the problem with this device was it really still didn't prevent the smells from coming up yeah. And that was the biggest problem with these toilets that were in the home was the smells that were coming out of them Right, uh, and continued to make them unpopular, trying to connect them directly to the sewers. Right, For a long time, even after the advent of sewers throughout much of modern uh, Europe, so predominantly in London and Paris, where you see these first really big sewers kind of developing, it was still very common to have the cesspit be the, the main collector for the waste in your home. And then these guys who would come and clean it out would then transport it to the sewer. Right, And that's where it was thrown away.
1: So this was a a major problem um one of the th- and unfortunately, so when people couldn't afford these toilets, they would use a commode, yeah right, and so what is a commode well uh, a commode is a is a very fancy way of of mixing a chamber pot with furniture and in a way, you can see this as the the precursor to a toilet because it it is more of a again, more of a comfort level than you know <laughs> uh, than maybe some of these other toilets would have looked like and around this period, maybe more maybe even a little bit prior to this. You start to see people trying to hide the fact that it's a commode. So you see these commodes that look not unlike like furniture, you know, that look like drawers or look like dressers. Some of them
0: had satin seats on them.
1: They did indeed. Very odd combination. Yeah. (laughs) You know, definitely not something you'd want. You want to accidentally open up the wrong drawer and and discover. Uh, No,
0: no, no, no. That's not the toilet. That's my dresser. Um, (laughs) Honey, we're going to get some new shirts. You, you know that nightgown you really like? I think you might want to find another one.
1: This was, in fact, actually one of the first times we started seeing a frat party take place. <laughs> take place. These were the first times you see these frat pranks taking place. <laughs> it was with mistaken commodes. <laughs> that is totally nonsensical. I just want to make sure it's really clear. Um.
0: Well, yeah, I mean... The the commode, or in many cases, more of the chamber pot was really the, the primary tool for, for relieving oneself for a long time.
1: and Even up the, into the early 20th century. Yeah, yeah. And,
0: and you think about uh, these women in Victorian frock, you know, who are dressed up in these extremely elaborate gowns. And you think to yourself, well, how did they use the toilet? Well, they oftentimes had these tiny little chamber pots that they would, you know, have brought with them to parties and what have you. And they were very small. They about the size and shape of a gravy boat and you simply pull up your dress and you put it underneath there and you you know you do your business and then you give it to your servant and they uh, they probably sell it or throw it away.
1: Yeah. It's a very very but it makes sense though. Yeah, it makes you sense. Know. Just it's one of those things Pe- where like
0: people didn't want to go to the toilet then. They right. wanted to the toilet to come to them, which is a very right. upper class way of thinking of things, right? Right. Yeah.
1: And then finally, I run the risk of perpetuating the myth but we really don't see the more modern toilet the way we conceive of it until Thomas Crapper. Um, but Thomas Crapper did not invent the toilet. He no. perfected an existing design. Not even. Not even?
0: I want to dispel the myth of Thomas Crapper Yeah. right now for the whole world to hear. Yeah, because that's... eventually this was going to come to a head. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist the pun. <laughs> Starting with, with Sir John uh, Harrington, right. you have this this elaborate contraption. had two of the three basic key elements of what made a toilet, a modern flushing toilet. But it wouldn't be until 200 years later uh, that you would actually have Alexander Cummings. So this is about 1775, who would come up and patent a much more uh, logical apparatus, one that was much uh, cleaner in its design and much more efficient, based off of Harrington's. And really, to be honest, Alexander Cummings should really deserve the credit of, of really bridging those two concepts and ideas together and creating the much more modern toilet. Thomas Crapper, that was his actual name, Crapper, who if you really look at it um, from the etymology of the, of the name, you have these other kind of dialects that are going on, right? So you have this kind of this... This O and this ah. Like you kind of find like a cockney, for example. Yeah.
1: Well, then also the short A, even in American English, the short A can take on an ah sound. Right. So it may have just been mistranslated over time. And
0: then eventually written out that way. So regardless, exactly. yeah. Thomas Crapper and the word crap have nothing to do with each other. Uh, crap is uh, derived from a word that essentially means, you know, to cut off or to stop uh, or to throw away.
1: Rubbish, basically. Yeah, so
0: eventually it became associated just with the word rubbish. So just on irony. But uh, he was instrumental in making sure that flushing toilets were installed in the homes of the royal family. And I think that's where Thomas Crapper kind of gets merged in with this concept and idea surrounding the toilet. It was the royals who were really promoting him as being the hot toilet guy.
1: So you said you had the piece. What was the final piece that really made it a viable appliance?
0: Well, what have we been talking about is these smells that have been coming out of the sewer. So the water trap. And the U-bend piping that allowed that water to kind of stay in there, it prevents those smells from coming up through the sewer and into the home. Ah. And that's really the, the key piece that made this all work. That and, of course, indoor plumbing. I mean, that's a whole other topic. We could go off and on about uh, indoor plumbing, but uh, once you had you know, brought water into the homes and could pipe it up you know, even two or three stories into the home, then you had uh, all sorts of possibilities. Now you could put a bathroom wherever you wanted. Now you could have a a modern toilet that would give you ease and comfort, get rid of your waste. You would never have to see it or deal with it. It would now flow directly into the cesspits that were connected to the sewer mains and flushed out and sent to the sewers. And so now only the people who were working in the sewers were the ones who had to deal with it. Right. People can now forget about it. And I think that that's kind of when now we decided bringing the bathtub and the toilet
1: into the one place,
0: all kind of yeah, all into the same place.
1: Because it was it was now a cleaner function. It was now a cleaner action,
0: right? And now you have that kind of more traditional um, what they call full bath. So full bath has, in our modern concept and idea of it today, a toilet, a bathtub, and a sink. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they include a shower as well. And the shower, you know, that was also an invention that uh, now became available because water was being piped into into the home. Uh Some of the first showers pop up just a little over hundred years right. ago or so right uh turn of the last century and uh you know if you didn't have warm water in your house because it was not enough to just get water into the home, eventually warm water would also have to be brought to the home via the the apparatus of the water heater, which wouldn't come out until a little bit later on, you oftentimes had to take these freezing cold showers
1: mm, because
0: you know with a bath, you can warm the water on the stove, you can bring it to to the bath, and you can you can sit and enjoy it. With a shower, you didn't really have that luxury unless you had warm water pumped into the house.
1: Right. With the birth of a water heater, of course, this makes things so much more easy to do. Because I mean, yeah. even with a bath, you have to heat it kettle by kettle, and that take quite a bit of time. It probably take an hour or so just to get the water ready. If yeah, I don't
0: know. I don't know how long it would take. I'm, I'm sure it would take quite a bit more effort than it does today, right? Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. But these these first showers are really interesting. They're kind of frightening looking. They almost look like torture apparatus because they're <laughs> they're like these ribbed type structures. Uh, with these uh long uh cylindrical shower curtains that kind of came down on the side. They were made out of linen. And then you had these uh these shower heads that were for first being produced and you know you just pull on the lever and you have this rush of cold water freezing you. And it'd probably be good if you're waking up in the morning and you know getting ready to go out and go to work, but I wouldn't want to do it any other time. No, 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 no. Yeah. yeah.
1: But you know, we talk about toilets and we originally were gonna talk about toilet paper, but I feel like that's Probably a little too crude for what we, for what we have time for, but I do want to talk about how.
0: Well, let's touch on it a little bit.
1: A little, okay, because it, it developed because paper was more of a recent development. I mean, there were plenty of other very creative ways of of keeping things clean down there.
0: If you can think of the most wasteful way of using a tree, mm-hmm. wiping your butt has got to be number one.
1: Yeah, and speaking of which, that speaks to why other countries don't necessarily use paper
0: that's right because there's many different types of toilets that are out there around the world we have this very western view of what a, of a toilet should be but there are different kinds of toilets around the world
1: and um in europe there's it's not uncommon to see a bidet which is a uh type of well,
0: that's not really a toilet though that, that's no but of, like, it's a cleaning but, apparatus but it's right?
1: Right? but exactly but it takes the place of toilet paper because it's basically a water jet yeah which again wouldn't have happened until we had this indoor plumbing
0: and while they're not very prominent in America, you know, Australia and Asia and Europe, the bidet is still very common. Yeah. And you find that it's actually much more environmentally friendly, of course. Yeah. And it's so fascinating. I just want to talk about it for a second because of the political implications of a, of a bidet. And you don't think about it in those terms. But when you think about it first really being invented and used, it was, it was more so in France. Right. France really propagated this. While it was meant to clean yourself after doing your business prostitutes also found it as being the perfect means by which to clean up for their next client Mm. Uh, and because the british and the french have this very combative view of one another that they were rivals in war and in science and in culture and in art and all of these things for many many hundreds of years the british were very disdainful of the bidet Uh, they considered it to be the tool of a french whore and they didn't want much to do with it during the Victorian period. Uh, And it was so very untrue. I mean, yes, of course, prostitutes on both sides of the aisle would be using it to clean themselves, but it had other practical purposes besides that. But Victorian England couldn't really get past it, so they didn't really see the bidet as being uh, a very good means to clean themselves because it was their propaganda tool against the French.
1: And taking the concept of the bidet, it just gets more and more creative. I I immediately think of... um... The toilets that are used in japan because some of these things are quite impressive <laughs> i mean when you really think of it like my dad used to take business trips to uh, japan and singapore and th- these rem- these literally come with remote controls on them <laughs> because they have different settings for because they and it's not just using one jet of water now it's now multiple jets of water oh god yeah it's like literally a shower for your butt <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm trying to, to make it to go there, but like it's and some of these use heated water as well as uh, and so so it's not like you know it's yeah. not like a because you know, we don't heat our toilets in the in, in the United States, so you know it's not as like oh good God. Uh, I think
0: the ones that impress me the most are the ones that play music and or have sounds of other people urinating because there's very much this this you know the Japanese are so interesting. They have such a fascinating culture. I absolutely love Japanese culture. And I feel like the sense of privacy for many, many Japanese is very important to them, particularly women, because uh, we hear a lot about voyeurism and things of that nature. And I guess there's some sort of fetish out there where listening to a woman urinate is arousing for some people. And so it's gotten to the point where it was like epidemic in Japan. Mm -hmm. And so these women, they invented these toilets to allow women to go to the, you know, John and Ease by playing music and other sounds and you have a variety of different sounds that you can choose from like an ocean right. and, or you know, a jungle or whatever. Sure. It's fascinating.
1: It's is, it's is definitely fascinating, but they also are very very functional when you think about it because Japan is a very very densely populated country. Yeah. Tokyo in particular is one of the most densely populated cities in the world. So having this kind of system in place makes it easier logistically because you don't have to worry about consumption of natural resources or even just the sheer shipping of those into the in into, regards to the bidet exactly yeah china as well recently it's funny because i did try to find some research on it but the government actually censors very tightly what the public toilets look like in china to the point where reporters actually have been told they're not allowed to report on them <laughs> <laughs> But suffice to say, the one thing they can say is that they've gotten a lot cleaner than they used to be. Because there used to be this connotation that they weren't. And um, throughout
0: China, the predominant design is the squatting toilet, right?
1: I believe so, yes.
0: And there are many proponents of the squatting toilet who say it's much better for you, that it's the way that we were meant to relieve ourselves. Um, And it encourages you to spend less time in a sitting position, which is actually healthier for you. And there was this fascinating infomercial that Martha and I were watching this this television show of like the worst infomercials of all time. Mm-hmm. And they have this uh this device called the squatty potty. <laughs> and it's this adaptation to your Western toilet to make it like a squatting toilet in uh in in China. But I won't go into any further details. If, yeah. If you're so inclined, you can research the squatty potty. Right. And let us know your thoughts and ideas on it.
1: Right, right. And um suffice to say too that if you know if everybody in China were using toilets the way we were doing them in the united states there would be no trees left yeah. on the planet. is we're talking about one and a half i think almost two billion people now wow um i think it's one and a half is now really that many that's amazing yeah yeah one and a half billion people uh and these of course are in major cities you know there's still a good portion of china it's still very rural and undeveloped too yeah um nevertheless you you would have a very major logistic problem
0: you know that's a good point because we think about all the billions of people who live on the planet not all of them get to have these elaborate bathrooms like we have in, in America today. Exactly. There are many, many billions of people who do not have bathrooms built into their house. In fact, there are some who are you know, using the toilet in worse conditions than ancient India was in modern India today, which yeah. I find is absolutely ironic. I just kind of feel, though, like in our culture, in the Western culture, we've really gone crazy with the bathroom. Do you ever watch um, that that old show with Tim Allen? Uh,
1: Home improvement. Home, Home improvement. Yeah, I remember the man's bathroom. The man's bathroom. And do you remember that. they there actually are, had like a recliner built into the yeah, toilet? Yeah, there
0: are crazy bathrooms that, that yeah. people have spent you know millions I mean, of dollars. I they
1: in have whole things. shows like Sweat Equity that yeah. talk about you know building in like electric coil heating underneath the tiles so that when you wake up in the morning you don't have to worry about cold tiles <laughs> in the bathroom. Like, Designer really? bathroom. Exactly. Expensive bathrooms, you know, and people who are importing Japanese toilets into the United States. Um, with all the music that they play. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's eco-friendly, I yeah, guess. I mean, provided you're in an area, there's abundant water. <laughs> it is it is this weird obsession that we have with this room in the house that we don't spend all that much time in.
0: Yeah. And to think that we also do other, you know, methods of, of cleanliness there, right? So, like, brushing our teeth, for example. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I just wanted to touch on this very briefly before we wrap up, though, because uh, the the toothbrush... Where do you think it was invented? Where do you think the first tooth toothbrushes came from?
1: Well, toothbrushes.
0: Okay, let's let's dial it back. Where do you think the first tooth uh, cleaning tooth cleaning really came from?
1: Um, I'm gonna guess the Egyptians at this point.
0: And listeners on our home game, add those five points back on, because you are right.
1: Yeah, I remember actually going to <laughs> to the Rose Christian Museum and seeing the earliest toothbrushes, <laughs> and the, these toothbrushes were really not what we would consider toothbrushes at all. They're
0: Well, they weren't brushes in any stretch of the imagination. They were more sticks. Yeah, they used twigs and sticks that were frayed at the end, and that was used to get in there to move around what was more important, the salt that you would be using to clean your teeth. So nature and salt in Egypt in particular was was used. Yeah, Same stuff they used to dry up the mummies, right? They used to brush their teeth. Yeah. And it was essentially like using baking soda to brush your teeth, which a lot of people today do. Yeah. Uh, Toothpaste is a very modern... Invention, you know, just came about not very long ago.
1: Sure, and if you think of it, it's actually pretty functional because the more you put that type of environment in your mouth, the drier your mouth gets, and which means the less likely there is for moisture and therefore bacteria to grow. So it probably had some.
0: Well, that, I think, is also the graininess of the of the actual salt itself acts essentially like Brussels, right? So yeah. it gets in there, and it really cleans away a lot of the plaque, and it's, sure. it's very functional. And then in China, you find some of the first real toothbrushes that were actually being made out of uh, swine hairs, you know, pig hairs. They were small, and they were rough and coarse, and so they were actually perfect to be inlaid into pieces of bamboo and, and bone. And then that was used as, a, as an actual toothbrush. Right. And then around in the 15th century or so, we find that that advent in China made its way back over to Europe. Right. And, and th- that's when the toothbrushes started to pop up in more frequency. Yeah.
1: But, but still the, pretty rare. Though the British did use uh, twigs as well. A twigs very similar to what you're talking about. But they actually had one of the first toothpastes. Mm-hmm. This has been a very interesting exploration to the bathroom yeah you know yeah.
0: and it's it's a little different than i think some of the topics that we've dealt with because we, we've <laughs> done some some heavier topics in the past and I, I really wanted to just kind of do something that was a little bit more fun a little more who knew-ish you know yeah i think it was a lot of fun uh, i apologize to our listeners who may have found some of our references a bit crude a bit uh a bit lewd uh, yeah. but you know what we've earned it yeah. We've done plenty of episodes. We deserve to have a little bit more fun and, and release a little potty humor into the into the episodes.
1: And our loyal listeners, you know, if you of course have had any objections to this, please let us know. We will gladly share your voice of opposition on the next episode. <laughs> so, <laughs> or if um, you
0: have an interesting idea or something that we didn't mention on the show that you would like us to bring up. Of uh, maybe course. Maybe you know of some strange bathroom or some uh, different little factoid that we, uh, that we skipped. Please yeah. email us, let us know, and we'll be happy to, to give it a shout out.
1: K- keep the conversation going. There's actually a couple places you can go if you really do want to learn about this more absurd parts of history. One is the Plumbing Museum.
0: And where is it located, Brian?
1: Very ironically, it is in Watertown, Massachusetts.
0: <laughs> I don't think there's any irony there. I think that was intentional. <laughs> yeah, probably.
1: And it's got a pretty cool fascination about early toilets, early modern plumbing. And there's also, if you are, guests are in the Eastern Hemisphere, um, you can find the Salab Toilet Museum in India as well. And India is, of course, a massive country. So, um, Just but Google it. You'll find it. you Google it. You'll find it. Exactly. <laughs> Probably um, take you
0: about seven hours and fourteen different buses, but you'll get sure.
1: there. Sure, folks. For those who haven't voted yet, please, um, if you listen to our sister podcast, Nerds on Film, we were very curious to know whether you want us to do a live Oscar podcast. So,
0: personally, I think it would be a lot of fun because you folks would get to not only hear us live and uncut, but you'd also get to uh, participate by, you know, live chat or what other means we uh, we devise. We yeah, do, we're
1: experimenting with the idea of even doing Google Voice as a means of calling in yeah, and talking be with us. It would be, be a lot of fun. Um, you can vote for that through either emailing us at our general email address, com, or going to our Facebook page for Nerds on Film and voting uh, there. The question is pinned to the top of our page. Uh, of course, you can also get to Eric and I on Twitter. I am at Brian Moriarty. And Eric?
0: And I am at The Brickmont.
1: And you can also, of course, follow us on our general Twitter account at nerdonomy.com and just at anonymity on twitter itself eric thank you so much thank you brian you have a wonderful week take care